0: and worship uh, to refrain from the normal everyday labors that we engage in so that we could be reminded that we can stop and we can worship and that life will go on. In fact, life is better as we live in obedience to this rhythm of life. We thank you that it's so important for us to do this because when we go through life, uh, through the ups and the downs, it's easy for us to judge your love for us our relationship with you based on how we've done this week or what's happened to us this week, what good or bad things have taken place. It's easy for us when things are hard, when we're going through a pandemic, when things are difficult at work and we feel so overwhelmed, it's easy for us to lose sight of the goodness of God, to determine your thoughts of us based on the situations of our lives. But when we gather as your church, we gather as your people, we are reminded as we think about in space and in time, that there was a God who gave his one and only son in order that we could know for all time the way you really feel about us, that you loved us so much that you would give up everything you held dear in order that we might be your reward. We thank you that as we gather here, we can look back at The entirety of our lives, no matter what we've been through, and we can say that your goodness has been chasing us in all of our lives, though we've been unfaithful, uh, you have been so, so good and so, so faithful to us. Lord, may we not forget that. May the cross anchor our view of you and our view of ourselves. And may we know that this message has been entrusted to us, not just given, but entrusted as stewards, not as hoarders, as stewards that we might take this and bring it to those in need. We pray that you would give us eyes to see people as you do and hearts to beat with your heartbeat and hands and feet to go where you would call us to go and to reach out to those with whom uh, you want us to share the hope of Christ. We pray that you would do that in our everyday lives, scattered, and you would do that as we practice within our house churches and youth ministry, children's ministry, and in our homes. We pray that you would help us to be those Christ-centered leaders who are equipped to glorify you by transforming the world, so lead us in that endeavor. Bless our congregational meetings and our uh, missions presentation later today and all that we do for that end. Pray that you would be with our workers in places around the world, in uh, North Korea, South Korea, China, and Mobilizing in Japan and amongst the Uyghur people, in Kyrgyzstan, in Thailand, in Myanmar, in Taiwan, in Vietnam, in uh, Australasia, in Cameroon, in Spain, in Jordan, and Turkey, and countless other places, Ecuador, where missionaries serve. We pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, a continued longing to enter into the battle with them through prayer, finance, encouragement, remembering them on their birthdays, whatever ways that we can to let them know that we are partners in the fight, And that for everyone in the battlefield, that there are multiple holding resources and sending them out and calling on our commander-in-chief to send aid in times of need. May we be the mission's team for the work of God throughout the world. And as we look into your word, we pray, Father, that you would speak in a way that you alone can, that you would be with me, my gracious master, and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name, that we would be a church that's pure, that's longing for uh, the return of our King Jesus and laboring till that end. And so as we hear the word of God and as we hear a word of testimony from Miss Jeannie, our children's ministry director, who's invested so deeply into the next generation and their families, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. We thank you so much. We listen, we love, because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Miss Jeannie. Man, doesn't watching Russell knock at the door make you want to teach children? Holy cow. I was like, sign me up. If anyone uh, wants to be a preacher here, I will go and ke- uh, teach the children. Um, I, have, uh, I have absolute, uh, yeah, I'm so thankful for the ministry of uh, Miss Jeannie and our children's ministry. They have been doing an amazing job through all of these years um, raising up. Like, I think we have the best youth ministry in the world. I think that comes from... Uh, the best children's ministry. So um, this is an awesome opportunity. I, I can guarantee you that not only will you be investing into the lives of kids, but um, they'll be investing into your lives as well, um, whether you know it or not. And like Miss Jeannie said, you will become more the childlike person that Jesus says is great and valued in the kingdom of God. Uh, can you turn to someone and say, let's love children. Can you do that? Let's love children. All right, everyone who said something, you can sign up with Miss Jeannie at the end of our worship service. Uh, 1674. I don't know; none of us were alive in 1674, but there was a lady named Margaret. Uh, I forget her last name now. Margaret. She was alive during that time, and she was engaged to uh, she was engaged to a Presbyterian pastor named Henry Erskine. So they were engaged to get married, and they ended up getting married. But soon after their wedding, Margaret got sick. Uh, She got sick, as often is the case in stories that are told from the pulpit, but she got sick. And she was very ill, and she passed away, or she was pronounced dead, uh, within a few weeks after their wedding. And so uh, Pastor Henry was obviously heartbroken over this. He was devastated the love of his life gone in just a matter of weeks. And so as he was grieving, he was mourning, he went to the person in town who takes care of funerals. They didn't have funeral homes back then. They didn't have funeral parlors or things like that. And so whomever they could get to do that would be the one who did it. And so there was a local carpenter in town. So he was a dude who came and he would build the coffin and he would uh, put the body in and he would put it into the ground, dig a hole and put the dirt over it and, and all that stuff. And so the carpenter was hired to do that. And when it came time for them to bury Miss Margaret, he noticed that her husband had put a lot of jewelry on her. Her husband, uh, Henry, didn't have long enough of a marriage to be able to shower her with love, and so he said, the least I can do is I can bury her with jewelry to show my love as the last thing I do before uh, I, I uh, you know, bid her farewell. And so he put necklaces and put a ring on her, and then he uh, turned her over to the carpenter. Carpenter put her in, uh, noticed the jewelry, and said, you know what, uh, it's kind of a waste kind of a waste for that fine jewelry to be six feet under with the rotting corpse of Miss Margaret. And so he said, I'm gonna take it. So he nailed the coffin shut and put it into the ground. And as Henry said his final farewells and went home to grieve and mourn, the carpenter undid the nails in the coffin, opened it back up, and started removing the jewelry from Miss Margaret. Crazy, right? Took the necklace, put it in his pocket, tried to take the ring off. That's what he really wanted, but the ring wouldn't come off. Knowing that he uh, would be able to get a pretty penny for that ring, he took out his knife and he started amputating her finger in order to get the ring. Well, as soon as the knife started cutting into her skin, Margaret Erskine woke up. She was in a coma for a very long time was pronounced dead, but she wasn't actually dead. She was merely in a coma and she came to her senses as the knife was rubbing against her. She got up, he looked at her, thought she was a ghost, flipped out, started running, and she was left to herself to climb up out of that coffin six feet under. It was a crazy story and there's a little bit more to it that I may get to at the end of our time. But what happened in her, she was pronounced dead Everyone else thought that she was dead, but something happened that caused her to say, well, this would be a really good time for me to get up. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, the message that God has been given to the churches is, it's time to wake up. And as we've been hearing this, my hope and prayer for me, for you, for us is that you would be hearing the voice of the Spirit say, hey, you know what, if you're sleeping, if you're in a coma, if you look like you're dead, now would be a pretty good time for you to wake up. That was the message that Jesus gives to the fifth church in our tour of Asia Minor. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to look at Jesus' words to the church in a city called Sardis. And the main message that he gives is, let's wake up. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God for the people of God. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Uh, Next week is Memorial Day. Uh, I believe it's on Monday. I don't know if you are familiar with that holiday, but it's it's a It's a time to remember those who uh, gave their lives in defense of the country. And It happened that uh, in this one one church, there was um, a worship service, a very patriotic church. And the day before Memorial Day, they had a list of the names of the people in the church whom they were honoring during the occasion of Memorial Day. They had a list of names going on the screen. And this little boy said, "Uh, Dad, who are those names? Like whose names are being flashed on the screen. And dad said it's Memorial Day tomorrow so these are all the people who died in service. The boy was completely confused. That had no that that made no sense to him and so he said, "Well, did they die in alpha service or omega service? <laughs> Which service did they die? There are a lot of churches that have dead people." in their worship services. And the question that Jesus asked to the church in Sardis and the question that he asks to us today is are you a zombie in the church? Is your church dead or is it alive? What does that even mean? Maybe like the little boy we're confused as to what this is all about. Two things that we see in this passage that we read here. The first thing is this. Okay, what does it mean to be a dead church? A dead church is one whose reputation is great but its reality is not. Look at what Jesus says. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll get to what that means in a sec. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. A dead church is one who's got a great reputation, but the gap between the reputation and the reality is pretty sizable. And the question that he asks us is: Is our church dead, or is our church alive? I don't know if you've ever met a person whose reputation preceded them, like someone you knew all about. Oh, you know. Oh, finally I get to meet. Oh, you are the Yoon Hyuk Kim. Oh my gosh, you are the Titus. Are you really the Titus? I've heard so much about you, and what you always say is good things. I hope. <laughs> And they're like oh yeah only good things that's always how the conversation goes but have you ever met someone like that whose reputation you had heard much about but when you met them you're like eh it's a little bit different from what i heard about you i remember watching a a tv show it was a reality tv show years ago probably like 10 15 years ago and there was a korean man on there he was the star of this particular show at that time not a lot of asians were on tv Uh, definitely not on reality TV. And so here's this guy. He's like in his 50s. uh, And I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want you to know who he is. But um, he was on this show and I remember watching it and I was completely smitten by him. Not because of his good looks or anything like that. He's not the best looking man. It wasn't about that. That's not what kind of show it was. But I was smitten because his personality, his kindness, his love, his generosity, his social adeptness in dealing with difficult people was so winsome and so charming that I was like, man, that guy is a stud. And so I did what I do, what you do when we find someone that we are really excited about we google them and we google and we find out more about them and i found out this guy's a great he's a philanthropist he's so generous in all of his endeavors and i found out that he was a fellow believer a fellow follower of jesus christ which made his stock in my mind go up even higher i was like man this guy's a stud i like this guy a lot a couple years later, I was going to a conference in Philadelphia. Some of you went also. A group of us went. It was a big uh, a Korean Christian conference in Philadelphia. And turns out that he was one of the speakers there. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be amazing. I can't wait to meet him. I was so excited to finally meet this dude that Olive and I had been talking about. we like, man, this guy's a real deal. So exciting. I was going down the stairs at the Philadelphia, on the escalator on the, at the Philly Convention Center, and I saw, oh my gosh, there he is. He's wearing like a navy blazer and khaki pants and a, and a button-down shirt. And I was like, man, that's him, like in the flesh. And so as I was going down the stairs, I was like, I hope he doesn't move. And I got there, and I walked up to him. He was standing by himself, and I was like, hi, uh, my name is D.L., and I just wanted to, to say hello and how much I admire and respect you. And I put out my hand to shake his hand like a, a good handshake is where like the webbing of your these these two fingers meets each other and then you you start to clasp this gentleman didn't give me so much as the four fingers right here and that's about it there's kind of like this ultimate like dead fish kind of a thing i was like ooh like <laughs> and 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 part of it was like his like jacket that he was wearing was way oversized and so like five inches past his wrist and so his hand was basically covered up so he was like, kind of like this so I was like <laughs> I grabbed him and I was like oh, weird but I said hey um in my mind I'm like based on everything I know you're a stud so I'm gonna keep on talking so I said hey I just wanted to let you know I saw you on TV I saw you on that show and man like mad props like I have so much respect and I love how you treated those people and I love blah 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 all this stuff and and I said this at the, at the first service, but he looked at me as if I'd awoken him from a nap. Like, he just had that, like, why are you bothering me look? And I was like, ooh. So I, I, after I said that, uh, I, I went on this, like, long speech, and then he looked at me, he's like, okay. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> For conversation to happen... It's like playing tennis, one person sends the ball over, you have to send the ball back over to the other side, but if the ball stops there, if it goes to the backstop, or if it goes into the net, then I've got to do my part over again. And so, after that long speech, and he said, okay, I didn't know what to say. So, I said, um, uh, I'm just wondering, is there anything that you might be able to share with me as, you know, something that you've learned, uh, maybe a word that I could you know, just take back with me." And he said, hmm. And he sounded as if he was thinking of something. And then he said, thanks. And then he walked away. I was like, what in the world was that? I completely shattered my dreams of who this man was and everything that I knew. His reputation was amazing. But the reality, wow, wasn't that great. <laughs> The gap between reality and reputation, that's the gap that Jesus is talking about to the church in Sardis. Jesus says, your reputation is great. Like everyone says that you're a people who are alive, but really you are dead. It's easy, isn't it, for a celebrity, for a person, for a church to look great from afar, but when you get up close you realize that they're actually pretty far from good that was the problem that Jesus was addressing in the church in Sardis he wasn't talking about you guys are being persecuted you guys are being overrun by false teachers you guys are giving in to compromise that's not what he was talking about here here it's very simple There's nothing about those things. The problem is you had a reputation. You were great, but now you're not so great anymore. What happened to the church in Sardis? Well, I think to understand that, you have to go back to the city itself. The city itself was a great, thriving city. So 700 years, seven centuries before Jesus spoke these words to the church in Sardis, they were a thriving, booming, one of the most influential cities in Asia Minor. They had a reputation of being a well-fortified fortress and nobody could penetrate it. They never lost any wars that they ever fought in. In fact, most countries would not dare to go to war against them. Why? Because they were situated on a hill about 1,500 feet above the valley and on three sides of them, there was almost a 90-degree cliff. So if you wanted to climb up, you had to climb up 1,500 feet and the, and the other way was, was well-protected. There was a saying In ancient Asia Minor, if you wanted to do something impossible, like I've got a 0.0 GPA and I need to get a 4.0 GPA, you know what they would say, what people would tell you? That's impossible. You're trying to capture Sardis. The phrase at the time to talk about an impossible task is you're trying to capture Sardis because the city had gained such a reputation for being an impenetrable city that to try and capture it would be an impossible task a fool's errand and so it came to be known that sardis was a city that could not be taken down and sometimes you know as people start telling you things about yourself whether they're true or not you begin to believe those things you begin to drink that proverbial kool-aid and that's what the church i'm sorry that's what the city of sardis did every other city put watchmen on the walls at all times so that if invaders were to come, you would have people watching and defending the city. They said, you know what, capturing Sardis, impossible errand, therefore we don't need to put watchmen on the walls anymore. And so it was that in that 700 year gap between the glory days of Sardis to the time where they became insignificant in the Roman Empire, twice the city fell and it wasn't because of armies invading, it was because of one person on two occasions who stealthily climbed through, opened the city gates, and let others come in to overtake the city. The problem with the city of Sardis was that they'd become complacent because their reputation had preceded them. And they said, we're okay. We can live off of the glory of our reputation and off of the glory of victories past, And that kind of mentality had seeped into the church as well. In fact, why was there no persecution against this church? Why were there no false teachers coming in? Why was nothing happening on the outside against that church? Because most likely Satan thought, well, they're a dead church anyways. I don't need to attack them. They're killing themselves from the inside out with their complacency. A dead church is one whose reputation is great, but its reality is different. And the question that confronts us this morning, have you ever been part of, more pointedly, are you now a part of, a church that could be described as dead? Reputation might be great. People can't come into Sardis. We're like, dude, we heard so much about your church. People said in all around the city, the church in Sardis, that's a booming church. It's the place to be. They worship God in that place. Jesus said, I know, I know. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Could that be said of us here at Harvest? Because you know people may say to you all the time like they say to me hey DL I heard about your church oh I hear about harvest like people say this all the time they come as guests to our church oh I came because people told me there's a great church I got to come and check it out or hey yeah people from out of town say come visit hey yeah you should I heard a lot about your church my friends came and they told me or people from uh, who know about your church came and told me this that and the other good things I hope (laughs) oh yeah all good things Fact of the matter is, there are a lot of churches that can be good from afar, but up close are far from good. Could that be said of us if Jesus was looking at our church? Because you know what people say when they come to our church. Oh, I heard your church is, is so welcoming and so hospitable. That's the reputation. But if people are leaving the church out the back door because they felt like nobody welcomed them and nobody cared for them and nobody reached out to them, then could it really be said that possibly we are the church in Sardis? Oh, yeah, we love coming to those worship services because we get so, uh, we get so encouraged, we get so inspired, the gospel moves us, the songs, the sermons, the testimonies, and we love it, but if there's no change in our lives, could it really be said that the reputation and the reality are one and the same? Oh, yeah, you know, this church is all about missions, all about evangelism. They're house churches, all of them named after a missionary. They're doing great stuff. But if people aren't coming to know Jesus, then has a reputation gone before a church and its reality has lagged far behind? Could it be said of us that we are the church of Sardis Well let's let's bring it down a little bit. What what about you and what about me? We have a reputation. You have a reputation. Oh yeah, you're a leader in the church. You teach children. You spend all your time with our youth. Spend all your time doing children's house church. You have a reputation too. People know you as something or other. But what about the reality? What about the reality? Where are you? When Jesus, who says, I know your deeds, when Jesus sits and speaks into our hearts, what would Jesus say? See, the challenge with the church in Sardis was that they were okay to glory in the glory days of yesteryear, and that was good enough for them. What about you, and what about me, and what about us? As we talk about your spiritual life and my spiritual life, Talk about, okay, talk about a time when you've seen God move in your life. And every time you think about it, the stories are always from your younger days. But talk about a time when you saw God moving because you served His people and all the things that you talk about. are Oh yeah, when I first started doing ministry, like 10 years ago. But what's the last prayer God has answered in your life? When's the last time you took a step of faith to bring the gospel to somebody? When's the last time you really took a step of faith and invited somebody to come to worship the Lord with you? When's the last time you saw God move in your life? Because it's easy to become like the city or the church in Sardis where we become complacent because we've begun to gain a reputation in the eyes of people whose voices become louder to us than the voice of love that speaks from above. What about us? What about you? And What about me? Yesterday was having lunch with a group of folks, and we were talking. Just talking about songs that we used to sing in college, these great worship albums from the 1990s, Winds of Worship, Vineyard, and all of these different songs that we would sing. The... Uh, contemporary Christian music as it was bursting onto the scene with Stephen Curry Chapman and all these other folks and talking about those songs. And then then progressed to talking about uh, our athletic achievements from our younger days and all of these different things. And one of the daughters of uh, one of the folks at the table said, why are you guys always talking about stories from the past? Why do you always talk about stories from when you're young? I, I think it was just a fascinating question for her. But it makes you kind of think, why do we tell stories like that when we get together with people we haven't seen in a long time? Well, in part because when you talk about it, it reminds you and you feel in a sense like you were still there. And the good thing is the Bible tells us to constantly remember these things because as we remember these things, we can see the gap between where we were and where we are now so that we can fight for those things again. But the danger comes when our greatest glories are recycled glories of an older time that have nothing to do with who we are in this present moment. The danger comes when we find our glory in the past, not in our present or in our future. That happens personally. That happens as a church happens as house churches, happens as a youth ministry. Do you remember five years ago when someone was getting baptized and we brought flowers up? That was awesome. But after that, we became complacent. And maybe we stopped thinking about, stopped praying about lost people, people who don't know the Lord. Remember when our small group was so great and, and we, were, we would cry every week because we're getting into the nitty-gritty and the broken parts of life, applying the gospel. But now, we just come and we just go and we go through the motions because, we, because we've become complacent with a reputation and we become complacent living in the glory of the past. That is what happened to the church at Sardis. May it not be the case with us. May it not be the case with you and with me that our glory days are in the rearview mirror And we're talking about it with nostalgia, not with excitement and anticipation for the future. That's why these congregational meetings we're having this week and the next couple weeks are so vital to those who call this church your home. Absolutely vital because we believe (laughs) that the great days of the past are just a sign of more to come. We're not living on the blessings of yesterday, but we're anticipating the greater work of God because with God, the great work of God in the life of the church, if the church still has a heartbeat, the greatest days for the church are still future tense. And the invitation of the church of Sardis to to, to us here at Harvest is that you would let yourself dream again and believe again and hope again and think again that greater things indeed are yet to come and greater things are still to be done in our church and in our city and in our world through us. The first thing that we see is that a dead church is one whose reputation is great, but its reality is not. First thing. Second thing that we see, and here's a great hope that God gives to us, is that God can use a remnant to resurrect a dying church, a dead church. Hey, God can use a remnant to resurrect a dead church. So everyone is looking at the church of Sardis. They're like, man, that church is alive. <laughs> Jesus looks at it. He said, nah, I don't think so. Looks kind of dead to me. The ushers, mm, the ushers look more like undertakers in the church. The elders are functionally embalmers. The musicians are morticians. The pastor studied at the local cemetery. (laughs) It's the Church of the Walking Dead. That's what Jesus said. But then in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, in verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Jesus says, within a church that's dead, there is a heartbeat because there are some people who are there who have not given in to this complacency, who aren't living in the midst of yesterday's blessings. There are people who are willing to stand and they're ready to live for the glory of God. They're ready and they're willing and they're able and they're going to go for it. I speak in this way so as to over-diagnose the issues so that we don't get under-diagnosed into complacency. I would rather uh, have us be very serious about the situation so that we long for and fight for the glory of God than for us to think everything is okay. Talking about the church in Sardis, it's not talking about us. It's talking about other churches, but definitely not us. I don't want to do that. I'd rather over-diagnose the issue and have us long for greater things. Because there is a remnant within every church that's still alive. That's the way God's worked throughout time. In, in the midst of a world that God said judgment is going to come because every inclination of every person's heart is only evil all the time, it said in those days there was a man named Noah. And God used him as a righteous remnant to spare the world. In the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, a people turned away from God. There was a man named Lot who stood in the middle. There was Moses, there was Abraham who stood between the living and the dead in order that the people would not be destroyed. It was, it's always been like that. In the days of Elijah when he was going up against 850 false prophets on Mount Carmel and he overtook them by the glory of God, fire falls from heaven and then Elijah goes into spiritual depression. And he says, I'm the only one. That's my problem. I'm the only one. Ain't nobody else following Jesus here, following God. Elijah, whose name is, there is no God like Yahweh. There's no one like him. He's like, yeah, but that's difficult because I'm the only one. And God says, no, 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 no. You know this, Elijah. You know that there's a cloud. Small as a fist in the sky, but there's a cloud, and it's going to come, and it's going to bring the rain because I have 7,000 people have not bowed the knee. the false prophets. These are the remnant who are going to save the people from judgment. In every generation, in every church, there's always been a people, and God has always used that remnant. Even you talk sociology, they say 2% of a culture can change the entire thing in the same way that a little bit of vomit in a pool can infect everything a righteous remnant can influence the entirety of the culture. I believe, and I, man, I, I I pinch myself with this reality that God can use one weeping prophet in the world to save a nation. I, one person who gets it and believes it in their bones that God, you want to use my life as part of a righteous remnant, as part of your minority in this world, that, God, you can use one individual, one singular life that is surrendered to to you, and you can use that to change the world. Do you believe that? is, Is our category of thinking of God big enough that one person could be used in that way? Alan Hirsch um, talks about this idea. You can imagine, I've talked about this before, but you can imagine this dystopian society where all the Christians in the world have died out, have gone apostate. There's there's nobody left except for one, an old 80-year-old lady. That's all there is. The only person, but she believes the gospel with all of her heart, and she's got it in her bones, and she's clinging to it with every fiber of her being. He says, even if everyone else has turned away from God, he said, if there's one lady who believes... He said, In her is the seed of a revolution. The seed of a revolution. And in every single person who has the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a seed of a revolution. There's a seed of a revival. There's a seed of a transformation. That's you. That's me. That's us. Doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter the gifts, the resources you think you have in you is the seed of a revolution because God has seen fit to put Christ in your heart, the hope of glory, the seed of a revolution that the world needs. That's you. That's me. That's us. Yet there are a few who have not soiled their clothes, and God wants to use the righteous remnant for his glory. I think about some of the churches that we meet with when we go to, like, synod retreats. we Go to these multi-church or K-flower retreats or what have you. Um, A lot of small churches who go there and, and they don't have youth pastors, they don't have anybody, and so they long for these retreats because Where else am I going to get spiritual feeding? Where else am I going to find fellowship? Where else am I going to have somebody who invests into my life and cares for me and prays for me? Where else can I hear the word of God that's in my language, not translated or not untranslated from a language that I don't understand? As I think about some of these churches and I think about some of their stories, it's the grace of God, man, that there's a remnant in some of these churches that, 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 that cling to the Lord, that love him. Think about like this, this one Methodist church in, in, in Tampa and in and out, pastors coming in and out, like one year, two years, three years are coming out. I go years without a pastor. But there's a couple youth students. One of them, he leads pray sometimes, a guy named Chanu Sida. One of these students who's like, you know what? We don't have anything, but we've got each other. We've got God. And we're going to pray. We're going to hold on. We're not going to give up the fight. We're going to keep on going. Keep on struggling, but we're not going to lose faith. We're not going to give up on Jesus. And the churches are blessed because there are people who cared and said, I'm not going to let this church go to waste. As long as there's something here, we're going to fight for it. As long as there's some people coming, we're going to seek to make this a a Christ-centered community. They fought for that, and they longed for that. When everyone else wanted to leave, they stayed because they believed that God can use a remnant to restore and revive and resurrect a church that seems to be dying. There is a cloud in the sky, and there's a remnant within the church, and God is saying, will you rise to be who I've called you to be? This is what he says these folks will do. He says in verse, uh, verse 3, there are these three commands of four commands that are just bang, 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 bang. They're staccato in their Greek, and its purpose was to kind of serve as a little slap in the face. The first thing he says is, wake up, wake up. To those who are slumbering, he says, wake up for the sake of your church. Wake up. Several times we see this in scripture where people have fallen asleep. Who are these people? You see like Peter, James, and John. Go with Jesus on the, Jesus, is, he said, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so Jesus says, watch and pray, but instead they sleep. Jesus says, wake up, let's go. So another time Jesus tells a parable about these 10 virgin brides and they're waiting for their groom to come and he's a little bit late and the candle that they're holding is making them tired and so they fall asleep. The groom comes and they miss out on their party. Now, they're so sad. Oh, I'm not married anymore. I'm not married. I missed my chance, blah, blah. And they get so sad. In the book of Acts, there's a time where the apostle Paul is preaching in a two-story, at least two-story building. I forgot what, it, what exactly it says, but he's pre- at least two stories. And there's a dude named Eutychus, one of the tragic tales, one of the cautionary tales, I should say, true story, of a dude who is listening to a sermon and he was sitting in the window because that's what people do, I guess. They sit in the window. But Eutychus was listening to Paul preach. And I, I think, you know, Paul would be an amazing preacher to listen to. But the book of Acts, Luke is writing this. And he says, Paul was preaching for a long time. And then it says literally in the end of it, it says, he went on and on. <laughs> like Luke is saying that too, right? The gospel writers. That must have been a long sermon. It goes on and on. And so Eutychus falls asleep. You ever fall asleep? During a sermon? Yeah, you fall asleep. The problem was this guy was sitting in the window on the second story, and he fell asleep, and he fell out the window, and he died. I'm not making this up. You can read this. Book of Acts. So Paul, like, oh, here's this commotion. Like someone fell. Oh, oh. Hey, uh, sorry to interrupt you, apostle, but Eutychus fell out the window because you were talking so long, and he's dead. <laughs> So Paul goes, oh, hold up, I'll be right back, Point eighty-five, and he goes down, he like raises Eutychus from the dead, goes back up, and he keeps on preaching. Three times people fell asleep when they should have been awake. What's the point? What were they, what, why were they sleeping? They were supposed to be doing something, but instead they were sleeping. The call to wake up is a call to those who ought to be doing something but you're not for some man i need to be i need to be reading the bible like that's this is my daily bread but we're starving for some of it it's you got all these things going on in your life in the lives of other people telling you all this stuff and i need to be praying like i need to pray but you but, but you're not praying Or you've got a a, a position and you're not fulfilling that the way that you are. Jesus says, hey, simple, simple. He says, guys, now would be a good time to wake up. This would be a good time. Then he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains. You see something going on in your church. It's like, you know what? Not quite right over there, but... There's still a faint glimmer of a heartbeat. Jesus says, go and strengthen that. Go and breathe life into that. Go and invest your energy into that. What are the areas in life like that? Maybe somebody that you're about to give up on because, man, they did it again. They keep messing up. They keep doing this or they keep doing that or they keep falling into this or they keep whatever it is, and, and you're just frustrated and you're like, you know what, for, forget it. Just, uh, they haven't been out for like months. Don't worry about them. Just forget them. He says, strengthen. What, maybe that's for some of you that's what it is. You've given up hope on the person that you've been praying for for a long time because you haven't seen it with your eyes. Jesus says, strengthen what remains as long as there's a heartbeat, as long as there's a faint glimmer. I've not given up on it. That's what Jesus says. We, uh, my brother and I, when we were in high school, we had these uh, two turtles, Romulus and Remus, and we kept them in a little uh, kid pool, plastic kiddie pool, like six, six inches high, filled it with water, put it out in our garage, put rocks in there, like you climb on it. If you wanted to be wet, you could be wet. If you wanted to be dry, be dry. So one night, it, I, I, we didn't check the weather, whatever happened, but it snowed unexpectedly. Maybe it was expectedly, we just weren't thinking. But it snowed, and as temperatures dropped below freezing, so too did the water in the garage that was in the pool that Romulus and Remus were living in. And so we went out into the garage in the morning to check on Romulus and Remus, only to find that they were frozen inside their pool. So we're like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? We didn't know what to do, and we were just in high school, so we took an ax, and we started banging through it, hacking through it in order that uh, we could hack uh, some kind of a, 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 a diameter around, uh, around uh, Romulus and Remus. And so uh, we got them out together. They were holding hands. So I'm just kidding. They weren't. They're were like, <laughs> so we <laughs> like cut out the ice, and, and then we brought it to the bathroom and turned on hot water to melt the ice like, come on, come on, come on. You got to come back. We're trying to think, can you even do CPR and a turtle? I don't know what we're supposed to do. Just waiting for life to come back. One of them ended up dying, would not move. So we're like, okay, let's throw that one away. And then the other one, we're like, warm water, warm water, warm water. And then it's like little legs start moving. It's tail starting. We're like, yes, we kept it alive. And because there was a the breath of life in it, and we did whatever we knew to do in order to keep that thing alive, And we made sure it wouldn't go back outside into the cold water. We gave it crickets. We gave it all the love that we can give because as long as there was still the faint glimmer of hope of life left in it, we were going to give ourselves to keeping that thing alive. Jesus says, your church at Sardis may look like it's falling apart, but don't give up on it yet. Strengthen what remains and he goes on and he says, remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. He's saying, remember the gospel. Fall back on that message that captured your heart. Remember the Spirit of God who brought that message and applied it into your life. The Spirit of God whom Jesus says, I hold the seven spirits In my hand. Why did Jesus say that? Again, he introduces himself to every church with a different name. Why does he say to the church in Sardis that I hold the seven spirits? Because he's not saying there's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but not talking about there's seven Holy spirits, there's just one. But each of the churches needed a different manifestation, expression of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying when he talks about the seven spirits, he's saying that the complete and full work of the Holy Spirit is ready to be operating within the church. The one church that hears the message of the Spirit was a one church that was desperately in need of the Spirit. And so Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to us, don't forget the work of the Spirit of God in your midst. Don't live, don't operate apart from the Spirit of God working through you because you and I know the difference between leading a youth small group in the power of our might versus leading a youth small group in the power of God's Spirit. We know that, right? You know the difference between leading worship, leading house church, leading a Bible study, preaching a sermon, doing evangelism in your own gifts with wise and persuasive words. The difference between that and doing it through the power of the Spirit, a demonstration The Spirit's power. You know what Zerubbabel says in Zechariah 4 6, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. The question that I ask all of us who are doing some kind of work for the Lord, serving the church, is if the Spirit of God were to withdraw from your ministry, would anybody notice it? If the Spirit of God were to depart from your parenting, the Spirit of God were to depart from your teaching, from your shepherding, from your loving, from your ministry, in whatever way you serve, if, God's Spirit, if the Spirit of God were just to drop out, uh, would anybody notice the difference? And the fourth thing he says is repent. Come back to me. Agree that where you're at is not where you need to be and agree with God that you want to turn back to Jesus. And here's the beauty of it all. We don't know what exactly happened, but there is some evidence that the church in Sardis did take the message to heart and came back to Jesus because a couple hundred years after this letter was written, there were archaeological evidence that showed that there was church edifices, structures, buildings built in that area of Sardis where believers would continue to meet centuries after this word was given. Jesus is calling them to awaken, and the promise he gives is threefold also. Overcome, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out his name from the book of life, for will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He's saying you work, you labor, you fight by the grace of God, not in order to be saved, but because you've been saved. Not in order to gain the favor of God, but because you have the favor of God. Not in order to secure your place in glory, but because your place in glory has been secured. As you labor out of your righteousness given by Christ, not for a righteousness, by your deeds. says there's a threefold inheritance. One, you whose clothes have been soiled will be dressed in white. Worshippers in Asia Minor would not be able to come into any temple if there was a trace of stain or soil on their clothing. And so they understood, and Jesus is saying, I alone can clothe you in white. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. When you make it to glory, I will ensure that I will give you the clothes that you need to confidently stand. And then he says, your name will never be blotted out from my life, from the book of life. In every uh, ancient city, there was a record of the names of all of the citizens. And if one you died or two you committed a crime, then your name would be erased from those rolls." Jesus is saying, no matter how dead you are, no matter how soiled you are, if you're mine, then you will never be blotted out from my book. I will never forget you. And when you get to the other side in glory, it says that I will acknowledge your name before my Father in heaven. I'll say, you know what, Dad? He or she is on my list. They're on my reservation. I got them in. I paid, and they're here. Uh, yesterday, w- some of us were talking about uh, one, of, one of the, the fellows there. His dad was an avid golfer. And so he was friends, knew personally Arnold Palmer. Some of you, Arnold Palmer is just a hospital. Some of you, Arnold Palmer is just a drink. But before he was all those things, he was a Hall of Fame golfer. And so Arnold Palmer was friends with one of our harvester's dads. And this one day, um, that man of our church, once of our church, was uh, at a golf course and he saw Arnold Palmer. And one of our guys, young a young teenager at the time, was there together with him, and he saw this man, we'll call him Mr. Lee, call out to Arnold Palmer as if he knew him. Hello, Mr. Palmer, is what he said. I said, that's really funny. That's funny. I think if I saw Arnold Palmer, I would say the same thing. Hello, Mr. Palmer. But I said, and this was my question, but did Mr. Palmer recognize Mr. Lee? They said, oh, yeah. He knew. He knew Mr. Lee. What a great thing to be known by someone like that. (laughs) Jesus says, you have so much better than Arnold Palmer. When you get into that gated community in glory, and my dad, the father of all, is there, and you come into heaven, (laughs) he'll know who you are absolutely, but so will I. And I'll say, Dad, you remember? You <laughs> remember this one? Yeah. And our father in heaven will say, Yeah, I love that one. I love him. Love her. I love her. And 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 he will know us completely. I don't know if the angels know us, but he says, I'll acknowledge you before my father and the angels. So he'll call all of the angels together. They'll say, Guys, guys, I want you to meet this one. I gave my life for this one. And they honored me. This is this is young Michelle. This is, this is Sean, this is Jonathan, this is Kristen. These are, these are my brothers and sisters and they're going to be living with us for all eternity. I paid it in order that they might have all of these things and we will be welcomed into our eternal rest. The longer we live, guys, the longer I live, the more I realize man, this world is not our home that our deepest family, yeah, absolutely here on earth, but we've got a growing family in glory and they're awaiting for us. And And the prize of them all is when we see our father and we see our older brother Jesus and we begin that great family reunion and we sing the songs of the church in a way that we've never sung them before. We hold hands and we sing and we dance with unfiltered glory free from any stained trace of a guilty conscience, confident, faultless stand before the throne. That will be our glory, and that's the end to which we labor. Our best days, my brothers and sisters, are yet ahead of us, not only in eternity, but in this life as well. He's not done with us yet. He's working in us. His vision is as big as the world, and he's calling each of us to be part of it. Now, right now, it's a really good time for us to awaken. Let's pray together. Let's pray for our church. Pray for our lives. Pray that we'd be people whose reputation lines up with our reality that we would live such a beautiful, winsome life that others are drawn to Christ in us. Let's pray for a minute. If you need to awaken, if you need to repent, if you need to strengthen what remains, if you need to remember the Spirit of God and the Gospel, where are you this morning? Let's pray for a minute like that together and then I'll close this part of our time and then we'll join together in a song. Let's pray together for a minute like that. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We've gone through five real churches in Asia Minor. You've heard the voice of love, our Savior who died for the church, speaking to us through each of them. So Now, Lord, would you give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. Father, purify a bride for yourself. Change us, make us more like you. That we would live to honor you. That Christ would be made known. and The church would shine for you. Father, we pray that if in our heart today there are things that have died, convictions, truths, callings, or on the brink of dying. If there are things within our church that have fallen asleep, that need to be awakened. Pray, Father, in a hope that the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, it's the same Spirit of God that's at work in us now. Pray, Lord, that you would arise and you would awaken us for that which you're doing in us, in this world, for your glory, for our witness. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first and gave your life for a broken bride. But we are so grateful. Help us to honor your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.